And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including hosts Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Welcome, I'm Dan Hesse, and I'll be your host today. Thanks for joining us. Our guest mentor is Mark Tatum, the NBA's Deputy Commissioner and Chief Operating Officer. Mark is responsible for the NBA's business operations, including leading the league's international efforts. He oversees global partnerships, marketing, communications, events, global strategy and innovation, and the team marketing and business operations departments, in addition to the NBA G League. Prior to joining the NBA, Mark worked for Major League Baseball in corporate sponsorship and marketing. And before that, he worked at the Clorox Company as a regional sales manager, at Pepsi in their sports marketing department, and at Procter & Gamble in sales management. Mark received his bachelor's degree from Cornell and his MBA from Harvard. He sits on numerous boards, including General Motors, USA Basketball, Basketball Federation, the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, the LA 2028 Summer Olympics, and the Harvard Business School Board of Dean's Advisors. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Dan. Great to be with you today. I'm so glad that you're with me. By the way, you're the first person I've ever interviewed who was born in Vietnam. <laughs> you know, I, I remember the Vietnam War in particular because my father fought in Vietnam during my sixth grade year, and that was probably the most traumatic year of my young life. Tell me about kind of how your parents met and the extraordinary steps that your father took to get you home to the U.S. Yeah, it's an incredibly unlikely story, quite frankly. So my dad grew up on the island of Jamaica in Kingston, Jamaica. He came to the U.S. when he was a teenager in search of a better opportunity with his mom, my grandmother, joined the U.S. Air Force as a teenager, went to fight in the Vietnam War, met my mother, who was in Vung Tau, Vietnam at the time, fell in love, got married, and had me in 1969 in October. And I will say that as I think back, and I think about this often, What my parents did at the ages of 23 and 21, at that point in their life, which is, you know, around the same ages as my two boys right now who are both in college, but they made a decision back then, some 53, 54 years ago, to actually bring me back to the United States. And as you could imagine, there were plenty of soldiers who had children in Vietnam who when they thought about it, I think said, there's no way I want to bring a family back or go through what it would take to bring a spouse back or a child back. And they sort of moved on with their lives. And there were unfortunately many kids that were born there to U.S. soldiers who were abandoned, quite frankly. So for my dad to have the foresight and say, you know what, I'm bringing them back with me. And then for my mother in the United States, but who decided to leave her family in Vietnam 
to be with my father here and to come back to the United States was incredible on their part. And, you know, I can't even imagine having to make that sort of a decision at the time. And to this day, Dan, they're still married. They're still married. Um, They settled in in Brooklyn, New York, in East Flatbush, in Brooklyn, New York. And I'm so thankful and so grateful every single day. There's not a day I don't think about if they had made either one of them a different decision in their life, how different my life would be. Well, that's an incredible story. And the way you've turned out has certainly made that an amazing decision on their part. So you grew up really around your dad's relatives, as I understand it, you know, and the culture you were raised in was really, I think you describe it as black West Indian, but you know, Brooklyn, you've mentioned that being mixed race, that you've described yourself as looking more Asian than black, you know, you face discrimination, I think from both whites and blacks growing up in Brooklyn, you know, young kids, I remember how sensitive I was when I was young, kids are sensitive, kids are also you know, they can be cruel. What did you feel like? What was it like growing up in that environment? How did you cope with it? And did going through what you went through help you later in life? It did. It was tough. As you mentioned, right, being the descendant of my dad who grew up in Jamaica, who's black, and my mom, who's Asian. And as you said, I didn't have a lot of my Asian side of the family there. So I was raised, all of our Thanksgivings, all of our holidays, you know, all my dad's family was black and from Jamaica and from the West Indies. And so that's what I felt comfortable with. But I looked Asian. And so I grew up in East Flatbush, Brooklyn, New York, which was at the time a very West Indian neighborhood. So Jamaicans, Haitians, people from, you know, Trinidad and Tobago. And I remember going to school and the kids would make fun of me because I looked Asian and they would make really hurtful you know comments at the time it, there were Bruce Lee in martial arts was a big thing and they would call me Bruce Lee and they would make all these sorts of references to that to me as a way to sort of poke at me and I think mm-hmm. kids do that and unfortunately that still happens to this day and and I it really went through this identity crisis Dan where I wasn't quite sure and I you know as a kid you just want to fit in you just want to be like everybody else and at the time mm-hmm. There weren't that many black and Asian kids. I knew none. And this was before Tiger Woods. This was before Naomi Osaka. This is before Blasian was a term. And so I really did struggle with that. And then I ended up going to a junior high school in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, which was an all-white Italian neighborhood. And there were a group of us from my neighborhood in East Flatbush that used to commute there to that school. And we had a, a whole set of other issues there, which were race-related too, that we had to deal with. It wasn't until I got to my high school, Brooklyn Tech High School, where it was a true melting pot of different ethnicities and cultures from all over New York City that I started to view my differences as unique and special in a good way, as opposed to a, a negative way. So that's where I really came into my own. But those things helped me appreciate and understand that, you know, the diversity of people, getting to know people for who they are as opposed to how they look and where they might be from, like that has been a fundamental part of my life. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, NBA Deputy Commissioner and Chief Operating Officer, Mark Tatum. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com and click on list of shows to listen to past guests. This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to The Mentors Radio. And now, 
Back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with NBA Deputy Commissioner Mark Tatum. Remember, you can also listen to this show or any previous show via podcast on Apple, TuneIn, Spotify, Google, iHeart, and more on any device at any time. Subscribe at TheMentorsRadio.com. So, Mark, you were an excellent second baseman, as I understand it. In uh, in high school, you even got to play, I think, in the city championship game at Yankee Stadium. You go to Cornell to study pre-med, where you also play uh, play baseball. But you switched majors to business. Why did you switch? Well, I was raised by these two immigrant parents to be a doctor. From you know, when you're when you're the first born son of immigrants, that is the goal for you is to be a doctor. <laughs> the second one's going to be a lawyer, and maybe the third yeah. one's going to be an engineer. So I, I got the doctor track, and I went through life quite frankly, not ever even questioning it. But people would ask me when I was a kid, what are you going to be when you grow up? I go, I'm going to be a doctor. And I went through high school in that way. And I went to college. And then I took organic chemistry, Dan. And that's when I decided I didn't want to be a doctor. <laughs> so so I figured it out pretty late in my path. But at that point, I was lost. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And fortunately, at Cornell, they had a wonderful place where I could go in the career center office. And I just said to them, I thought I was going to be a doctor. I don't want to go down this path, but I have no idea what I want to do going forward. And they suggested different classes. And that's how I got exposed to the world of business. And I really, really just started enjoying school for the very first time when I started taking marketing and I started taking communications and I started taking not so much finance and accounting, but general management. And that's when I really realized that there was something about those subjects that were much more appealing to me than organic chemistry. What's interesting is that happened to me when I started taking my first business courses. I was planning to be a lawyer and I got into business school. I started with business classes and I liked it. I found it really interesting and germane. So that was important. By the way, you mentioned organic chemistry. I had a lot of friends who were pre-med majors and that was the killer. And my son was in the College of Engineering and they had a course called, I think, biochemistry, which is similar, which is what changed a lot of engineers' minds about, you know, staying with that major. But anyway, after Cornell, you go to Procter & Gamble and there I think you discover, you know, you, you talked about how kind of studying business was a light bulb that went off. You learn there were careers in sports management. And so I think you, that's when you decided to go back and get an MBA. And then after you got your business degree, you took a job in Major League Baseball. What did you do in MLB and, and what did you learn there? That's right. That's right. So, by the way, the Procter & Gamble decision was one of the best decisions I'd ever made because I, I felt like I was so far behind. I hadn't had internships that were relevant in business. And so I really wanted to come out of Cornell and go do something where I could learn, where I could be a student of business. And Procter & Gamble trained me in the fundamentals of business management, the fundamentals of sales and marketing and handling objections and how to really present things in an appropriate and effective way. And so I learned from that. And then Procter & Gamble in 1994 became a sponsor of the World Cup of Soccer, which is the last time that the World Cup of Soccer was here in the U.S., of course, it's coming back in 2026. 
But that exposed me to this world of sports marketing. And that's when I decided that's what I wanted to do. Went back to business school. And then I had the opportunity to come come out and work for Major League Baseball. And it was a great time to be at Major League Baseball. This was in 1998-99. You might recall that was the home run race between Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. And every night was must-see TV um, yeah. with guys going and looking to break the record. It was the year that the Yankees were in the World Series against San Diego. And then my last day at Major League Baseball was the All-Star game at Fenway Park. So wow. I had a, a great experience there. And here, here it was, this kid who played at Yankee Stadium, who played baseball growing up, who ate, slept, and drank baseball, had the opportunity to work and corporate sponsorship for Major League Baseball. It was It was truly a dream come true. This is Dan Hesse. You are listening to the Mentors Radio, and we are with NBA Deputy Commissioner and Chief Operating Officer Mark Tatum. So then you see an opportunity at the NBA, and you had an opportunity to, I think for the job, you interviewed with the man himself, David Stern. What was he like, and how'd the interview go? <laughs> it's a great story. He um, he was a great man, and, I, and we miss him. He was very intimidating. I remember I was 30 years old and they told me that I had to interview. My last interview would be with the commissioner of the NBA, David Stern. He was this legend of the industry. And I remember going into it thinking this will be my first and last time that I ever meet this man, that I ever meet the commissioner. So I was nervous, but I said, because I'll never meet him again. I'll never see him again. So the first thing he does is he doesn't even shake my hand. He says, have a seat. And he says, you know, I hate you Harvard Business School graduates. Can't stand people that went to Harvard Business School in a, in a very stern manner, trying to intimidate me. And I said, really? For someone who hates Harvard Business School grads, you sure have hired a lot of them. And he said, yeah, like who? And I named every Harvard Business School grad <laughs> that worked at the NBA at the time. And he said, OK, you're right. And it was just it was just his way of testing me. And as a 30-year-old kid, I think he was trying to intimidate me just to see how I would respond. And I do think he walked away saying, wow, this guy really did his research. He really did his homework. And he wasn't intimidated by me. And I think that impressed him. By the time I got back to my office, I had a message from the head of HR saying, I don't know what you told David Stern, but he said, hire you right away. And that was, you know, that was some 25 years ago. So that was that was I obviously got a chance to spend many, many, many countless hours with him on trips around the world and learned a lot from him. He was truly a great man and a great person. I, I agree. By the way, this show, as you know from its name, is about mentorship. And from the outside, it looks like the NBA really understands the relationship between mentorship and leadership succession. And I've kind of watched from the outside, I watched. David Stern and Adam Silver and that relationship and how he brought Adam along. Who have been some of the key mentors in your career so far and what, what have you learned from them? I've been so fortunate to have so many mentors along my path. At Procter & Gamble, there's a gentleman named Russ Dunham, who was the market manager at Procter. And I remember early on, I was, again, growing up in New York, I sort of wanted to go do something different. And I thought about going to work in Puerto Rico for Procter & Gamble. And he said, Mark, you have so much more 
to learn here before we go send you on an international assignment. That will happen, but I encourage you stay here, learn here, and then those opportunities will come forward. So he gave me a different, unique perspective that was really helpful. And to this day, I stay in touch with him. Someone named Grant Lamontagne at the Clorox company. He was the head of sales and he was a a mentor of mine. And when I remember telling him I wanted to go back to business school to pursue that dream, I remember how supportive he was of me pursuing that dream and doing something that I wanted to do. And again, to this day, I stay in touch with those guys and, and they've been involved in other critical career decisions that I've made. John Rice, who I met at, at business school, uh, and, and he actually runs a sort of a mentoring program called Management Leadership for Tomorrow. But he, former NBA employee, one of those HBS alums that work at the NBA, but he's been a great mentor of mine too in navigating through my career at the NBA and in a global business. And then Kathy Francis, when I got to Major League Baseball, she was a CMO of Major League Baseball and, and again, helped me navigate through that organization and to get the best out of me and get me contributing at the highest level. So throughout the my career path, I've always had people who have been willing to give up their time, give me direct feedback, and made me understand how I could get better. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Mark Tatum, discussing finding your ideal career. You can listen to our show worldwide on iHeartRadio or on your favorite podcast platform like Apple or Spotify. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with NBA Deputy Commissioner Mark Tatum about navigating your career path. So, Mark, you've become a recognizable figure, I think partly because of the telecast of the NBA draft. And one of the things you have to do is try to pronounce names correctly. So I'm going to give you a quiz. Giannis's brother's full name. Can you can you say hey, that one? There's a few of them. Thanasis Antetokounmpo, Costas Antetokounmpo. So both of their names, yeah. I had the opportunity to call both of their names in different drafts. And so I've, I've become somewhat of an expert in how to say the Antetokounmpo family name. <laughs> <laughs> Better you than me. You know, that's really a special evening, I think, for players who've been working on this for, for their whole life and families. What's that experience like for you to share that with a player and his family when you call their name? It's one of my favorite days of the year, one of my favorite nights of the year, seeing the families come together. As you said, Dan, this is what those kids, this is what those young men, this is what those families have dreamt about for the you know 18, 19, 20 years of their lives, that one day they would have the opportunity that their dream would come true to play in the NBA. And Adam Silver and I, we get the opportunity to announce that to the world. And so, you know, I remember after I called Thanasis's name, and by the way, when you see his name on a piece of paper for the first time, it, it takes a lot of practice. And, and I do take a lot of pride in that because I want to get it right, because that's a moment in their history and, and a milestone for them where you want to be respectful and call them by their right name. And so I, Adam and I take a lot of time to practice 
their names over and over so we can get it right. And I remember that night afterwards, Giannis Anthanasis came up to me and they gave me a big hug. And to this day, you know, we have that that special relationship. So it's a it's a wonderful, wonderful night. It's a night where dreams come true. And so flipping it around, what was it like for you and your family? when you're the one handing out the nba championship trophy to the golden state warriors wow it was unexpected it was under unfortunate circumstances adam was not able to make it because he wasn't feeling well and so he called me up that afternoon i was in boston already for the potential closeout game it wasn't even guaranteed because it was game five so if the golden state warriors had won and they won that night they would get the trophy so adam called me up and he said mark you know, not going to be able to make it tonight. But if it happens tonight, go get him. You're going to do great. And when that moment started sinking in around halftime, that this was a reality and a possibility. Up until that point, I said, ah, it's probably not going to happen. But after halftime in that third quarter, it started looking more likely it was going to happen. That's when the moment started sinking in. And I had the opportunity to experience that with my wife was there. My two boys was there. And again, it wasn't it wasn't about me. And that was one of the, the pieces of advice I got going into it, which was this is about the team. And it was about the team. And I just spoke to the team, spoke to Steph Curry winning the MVP. But it was an incredible moment for the Golden State Warriors, despite it being in Boston. I got lots of booze <laughs> being in Boston, giving out the trophy to the Warriors. But it, but it was a fun night. This is Dan Hesse, and you're listening to The Mentors Radio, and we are talking with NBA Chief Operating Officer Mark Tatum. So with your kind of rich career experience, really understanding marketing and brands, it seems from the outside like the NBA has given players a lot more freedom and leeway in terms of building their own brands, speaking out on issues that are important to them. You know, how do you, if you will, give players this kind of freedom and at the same time protect the NBA brand? Yeah, it's a great question. We recognize that the reason that our league continues to grow and thrive is because they're the best athletes in the world. And they're very visible, unlike in some other sports, and they're very accessible. And our players have always you know, they're sort of the, the, the same age and demographic as some of our biggest fans. They're young men. And in the case of the WNBA, they're young women who really do resonate with that young audience. And so they grow up and they've grown up as tech natives and they've grown up through this age of social media. And they're very sophisticated in, in a lot of ways. We learn from our players in terms of what the hottest new trends are, the best ways to engage with our fans are. And so we said, let's encourage that. Let's let's let our players with their great personalities be able to shine and build that relationship with our fans around the world. And they've been able to do that. And I also think what's been helpful is players today, they come into our league much more sophisticated about these things. They view themselves as brands in and of themselves. And so very early on, they surround themselves with people and good management that help them develop their brands and manage their brands going forward. So it's turned out to be great in terms of a working relationship between us and the players. You mentioned the world, you know, the NBA, I know, has been working on increasing interest in the game and in the league around the world. What are some of the things the NBA does to build interest in basketball in the NBA? 
worldwide. It's, it's amazing the growth of the international game since the 1992 Dream Team participated in, in the Olympics there. You know, that Dream Team inspired players like Dirk Nowitzki, Pau Gasol, Tony Parker to play basketball. One of the fun stories I read about that I love to tell other people is that Tony Parker, growing up in France, the reason he wore number nine for all those years at the San Antonio Spurs is because that's the number that Michael Jordan wore on the Dream Team. And so uh-huh. Tony Parker would have probably grown up to be a professional soccer player had he not seen Michael Jordan in that dream team, which inspired him to play basketball, to bounce a ball instead of kick a ball. And now those three have gone into the Hall of Fame together, which is incredible. And they're inspiring a whole nother generation of international players. Three players, international players, have won the last five MVP awards, Dan. So Giannis and Jokic and then Joel Embiid have won the last five MVP awards. So it's incredible. We just had the World Cup of Basketball in the Philippines. The top five scorers were all NBA players, not one from the United States of America. <laughs> so these players are coming from all over the world, and they are not just playing in our league. They are leading our league in terms of the performances on the court, and it's been wonderful to see. By the way, Diane and I were in Barcelona in 92, we saw the Dream Team play twice, including the gold medal game. It was amazing, and we'll never forget it. By the way, in that regard, you know, it, it's different, the Olympics, because it is stars all playing on the same team. How do you balance, on the one hand, what you promote as a team sport, basketball is a team sport, with, we'll say, the creation of superstars and individual stars? Because that's important from a marketing point of view. You know, that's to a certain extent what fills seats. They come to see the stars. How do you balance that, the team versus the individual? Dan, I'd say, one, we're fortunate to have the best basketball players in the world competing in our league. And there's no question that the NBA features these exceptional superstars that people want to see, that drives fan interest. And in many ways, our players, because of how accessible they are, they've distinguished themselves amongst their peers. You know, championship teams traditionally have a couple of these stars, but they also have deep rosters and they play well together. And so at its core, basketball is a team sport and all five players on the court for each team at any given time play key roles in what transpires. So it's not just about the star player. Yes, that drives interest. Those star players are something that we're very fortunate to have in our league, but ultimately it's a team sport. And I think that team competitiveness really helps. And and we're always focused on creating a system that promotes a parity of opportunity where every team has an opportunity to win. So that's how we balance it. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Mark Tatum, discussing building a global brand. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with Mark Tatum about innovation. So, Mark, the NBA is constantly innovating. Can you describe some of the NBA's influence on pop culture and tell us about NBACon? NBACon was this idea of how do we take advantage of a big event like the Summer League that attracts these fans from all over the world 
And yes, they come for the basketball, but are there other ways that we can engage with them in a very meaningful way? And so our events team had this concept of they'd been to Comic-Con, they'd seen different events like this, and they said, why not create something like this around NBA culture, around music, fashion, and all kinds of different products? And so we created the very first NBA Con in Las Vegas, and it was a huge success. We had tens and tens of thousands of fans come through there, and every single one of the items that was in NBACon was one of one. So we created these unique opportunities for a diehard fan to come in there and get merchandise, get access to, we had a conversation with Victor Wembayama and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, right? Once in a lifetime sorts of pieces of content that we created there. We had musical artists come and perform. So it was, if you were a basketball fan, you had to be there. And that was driven from a need for us to come up with unique ways to engage with our fans. Talking about unique ways, what's the mid-season tournament all about this year? <laughs> yep. So a new thing, the in-season tournament. And we like to also take ideas from other parts of the world. And so in the NBA, it's a long season. And at the end of the season, there's one winner and there's 29 teams that don't feel like they've accomplished something. And so in studying and, and in being in different parts of the world, in soccer and basketball, you have these in-season tournaments and these cups that you can win. You know, when Manchester City won this year, they won the treble, which is three different competitions within their season. In our season, we decided, why not create that? Why not try that? Why not create a tournament within our season to give another team an opportunity to lift the trophy and win a championship for, again, the fans and the players to be able to take some pride in. And so we've done it on the WNBA with the Commissioner's Cup. And for the first time ever, we're trying this in-season tournament here in the NBA as well. This is Dan Hesse. You're listening to the Mentors Radio, and we are with NBA Deputy Commissioner Mark Tatum. So Mark, for the young people who are listening, what advice would you have for those who are interested in pursuing a career in sports management? The advice I would have is, if you're really, really serious about it, You have to be both patient and persistent. There are so many people, as you can imagine, Dan, who want to get into sports management, sports marketing, but sometimes those opportunities don't come along all the time. And so they're not as readily available as some other opportunities. So that's where the patience comes in. But the persistence has to be, you can't give up. If this is something that you really, really want to pursue, you have to try different things. I remember as I was going through that process, I remember sending out resumes to a bunch of different people and I didn't get a response back. And I decided, okay, well, that way is not working. Rather than giving up, I decided to try going back to business school and starting to build my network in that way. And so you have to really be resourceful. You have to be creative. You have to find the different connections. You have to think about how does your skill set match up with some of the needs of particular opportunities in the business of sports. So being able to be resourceful, using all of the different assets at your disposal to try to get in, that's where the persistence comes in. But to me, I will tell you, it's so rewarding to be doing something that I love, Mm -hmm. to be doing something that I would, you know, I, I wouldn't tell too many people this, but I would do it for free if I really needed to, because I do love what I do. 
Yeah, I think that applies pretty much to all business for people who are out there. Just find something you love. It adds so much to your life and you're probably going to be pretty good at it, you know, if you love it. That's great advice. Going back when I was younger, I remember that, you know, really great high school players, you know, Moses Malone, Kobe Bryant are a few examples, went straight into the league. And now there's this policy of, we'll call it one and done. You know, it's kind of this phenomenon of one and done where you have to go and spend at least a year, you know, in college. And I think football is the only other sport, major sport and basketball that require you to go to college. And, you know, as opposed to other sports, either individual like tennis or golf or team like baseball or hockey, it's up to the individual athlete. Some choose college. Some don't, but there's a way of pursuing your end goal of, of pro sports. And some have argued at the at the college level that it's not good for either the athlete or the university to have someone there who doesn't really want to be there. What's the NBA's view and how do you think about this particular issue? Yeah, I think there's different paths for kids who are coming out of high school to want to go play professional basketball. And there's more paths today than there ever have been. As you might know, the decision to require being a year removed from high school to be eligible to be drafted into the NBA has to be collectively bargained with the Players Association. And so that was how we got to the one year of having graduated from high school in order to be eligible. Again, I think the world has changed so much in the last couple of years that today, if you're a high school player, you can go play a year in college. You can go play for our G League team Ignite, which we've had several players do, and then get drafted into the NBA. There's other programs out there. You can go play. Some players have the mellow ball to go play internationally in Australia, in the NBL. And now with the NIL, players are able to go to college and actually do endorsement deals and earn a pretty good living in terms of playing for college sports and doing an endorsement deal. So I just think there's so many different opportunities and choices and options for kids who are coming out of school who want to come play in the NBA. And we want them when they get to the NBA to be ready. And it's a big commitment to participate and play in the NBA. And we, and we just want to make sure that those kids are prepared and ready when they enter into our league. So, Mark, how do you define the word success? Success, to me, is the impact that I am making and having on people's lives. I think we, and, and everyone defines it in different ways, but to me, I'm happiest. I feel like I'm successful if I'm making a positive impact in people's lives through the work that I do, through the interactions that I have with different people. We'll be back in a few minutes learning about the inspiring life and career journey of NBA Deputy Commissioner Mark Tatum. You will find all of our show notes and links at TheMentorsRadio.com. For those of you who listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or on another podcast platform, if you enjoy these conversations, please give us a review and tell a friend about the show. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now... Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with NBA Deputy Commissioner Mark Tatum discussing success. Mark, you kind of defined success, and you gave us a hint at what brings you happiness, but how would you define happiness? 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. For me, happiness, it, when I feel happiest, Dan, it's when I'm with my family. It's when I'm with my wife, my kids, my parents, my immediate family. That brings me a joy. And I remember in all my travels around the world, I would try to coordinate my schedule to ensure that I was there for the big moments in my kids' lives. And I would, if that meant, you know, going to China or going to Asia for 48 hours, I did that to be back for that play, to be back for that game. And I think, you know, making sure that you're showing up for the people that care about you, that you care about, I find that that's when I'm happiest. And, and again, when I'm making a positive impact on people's lives, that gives me great joy and satisfaction as well. I have many of the same beliefs that you do in that respect, Mark. So, you know, now that you've become so successful, you were recruited to the board of General Motors. What do you bring with your background in sports and, and what have you? But clearly you had some business experience before that in marketing and what have you. What do you feel that you bring to the board of General Motors or let's say a big, you know, big publicly traded company? And then what are you learning as a board member of a big public company that you can apply to your job at the NBA? Yeah, it's such an incredible opportunity to be able to serve on the board of General Motors with Mary Barra as the CEO. You know, I've learned a ton there. It's a different role to be a board member and an advisor as opposed to the operator of a business, which is what I've been obviously for, you know, 20 plus 30 years in, in the business. Asking the right questions, being able to take the step back and think about the longer term strategy is something that I've learned a lot from. I think where General Motors, when they recruited me to be on the board, they liked my global experience. They liked my experience with marketing. They liked the experience of having dealt with a players association, for example, and the collective bargaining opportunity. And you know, General Motors is a company that is part of an industry that's going through a tremendous transformation. And so innovation was something that also I've had a long career and experience in doing innovative things and creating new and exciting things. So I think all those things played into the reason why it was such a good fit. You mentioned Mary Barra. On the sports side of things, How's the WNBA doing and and what do you see for its future? The WNBA right now is doing incredibly well under the leadership of Kathy Engelbert. We've set records in terms of viewership, in terms of attendance, in terms of sponsor interest. And so what we're seeing is really, I think the rest of the world is catching up to the impact, the power, the presence of women's sports. And the WNBA has actually been doing this now for close to 30 years. And finally, I think we're getting the recognition from fans around the world at what a great league this is, how talented our players are, the opportunities that this is creating for women to pursue their dream of playing professional basketball. So really proud of the work that's being done there. As a Notre Dame basketball fan, I can tell you that the women have been disproportionately carrying the load for us. And so I've become a really quite a big fan of women's basketball and really like to see what you're doing for the WNBA. 
You know, thanks for joining us today, Mark. You know, your life story is so inspiring. And, you know, I believe that your best chapters have clearly yet to be written. To our listeners, please go to TheMentorsRadio.com for show notes and other resources. You can also listen to us online on any device at any time on any podcast platform like Apple, Google, iHeart, or Spotify. Join us next week at the same time for another edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Dan Hesse signing off. Remember, we're never too informed or experienced to stop learning. Thank you. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.